today here on Cincy Business Talk with Mike Roth, Cincinnati's most experienced Sandler trainer. We'll be talking to business leaders about how they have grown their businesses and people. We discuss new strategies, tactics, and philosophies which lead to positive growth in our marketplace. Our program is sponsored by Sandler Training by Roth & Associates. Each week, we'll talk with our best Cincinnati area top executives about their tools and insights. Our regular listeners will be given the edge that will help them win in a competitive environment which we live. Simple solutions to complex problems which challenge all of us are rarely correct. We will address complex problems or opportunities with appropriate solutions. If you have questions or comments, contact Mike at Mike Roth at RothConsulting.net or call Mike at 513-753-9400. Now your host, Cincinnati's most experienced Sandler trainer, Mike Roth. Thanks, Scott. This is uh, Mike Roth with Strategic Sales Experts, where we're the only Sandler training center that can both increase your sales and reduce your taxes. Uh, today, our guest is uh, a Sandler trainer in Kansas City, uh, Mike Crandall. Thanks for joining us, Mike. Yeah, thanks for having me, Mike. It's actually in Oklahoma City, but fairly close. Oklahoma City. I'm sorry. Uh, we are. Uh, let me take a, a minute here and tell uh, our listeners what's coming up in uh, in Sandler. We have a couple of exciting programs uh, coming up before the end of the year. Uh, on December 20th, we're going to have a questioning class using the correct questioning strategies uh, when talking to prospects. And our next business leaders workshop is on January 11th from 8 to uh, 930. Uh, And I want to invite everyone who is listening to come to that workshop uh, as my guest. Uh, The topic is going to be the secrets of hiring and managing winners in sales. There are great salespeople out there, both CEOs and sales managers hire for the wrong reason. Uh, They say to me things like, well, he knew our industry, or he was an old friend, or probably the worst, he used to buy our products or services, so he knows our product line. Uh, Sometimes they say things like, I hired him because he knows our prospects and customers from his past experience. In general, those are wrong reasons to hire salespeople. On our program on January 11th, uh, you'll learn the top secrets to hiring winners and managers in sales. You can call our office at 513-753-9400, extension 106, during the business day to make your reservation. This is going to be a great program. It will be sold out. Um, Let's see. Mike, why don't you uh, tell our listeners uh, about how long you've been a Sandler trainer and and how you got here in in your career? Yeah, Mike, I'm happy to do that, and thanks for asking for me, uh, I've been a Sandler trainer slash coach for about seven and a half years. And like many of the people in our Sandler network, I was in sales management and, and running some different business units prior. And I like to say that I was accidentally introduced to Sandler. Uh, it's kind of a little bit of a funny story. I was literally driving down the road one day and a, a good friend of mine who I'd known for a long time called me up and he said, hey, Mike, what do you know about Sandler training? And I said, I've maybe heard of it, but really don't know a ton. Why do you ask? And he said, well, the CEO of my company, and he was a sales director for a company at the time, the CEO of my company just came down the hall and said he signed our entire team up for some Sandler training. And I said, that's cool. And he said, yeah, they signed us up for two years. 
And I said, wait a minute, sales, management, training, development, two years, those things don't go together, at least not throughout my career. Mm-hmm. So I had a lot of questions. Uh, he did not have answers because he was calling me. So my natural curiosity kicked in. And later that night, I was in front of my laptop and I Googled Sandler and started reading and was intrigued. And one thing led to another and I ended up starting a Sandler office. Mm-hmm. How many years ago was that, Mike? It was about seven and a half. Mm-hmm. And how many years of sales or sales management experience did you have uh, before you, you uh, got involved with Sandler? Yeah, it was close to 20. So throughout my career, I'd always been in some type of sales, sales management role and started out as frontline sales, worked my way up to I was running a good chunk of the country and a good chunk of the U.S. and Canada and some different responsibilities. And um, so, yeah, I'd been around for a while. So in that first Sandler training, do you remember any uh, anything that really hit you over the head like a ton of bricks? Yeah, well, my first exposure, because before I ever went to any type of training, uh, when I inquired about what Sandler was online, I got a phone call from Ron Taylor, who's our corporate franchise development officer. And he called me and little did I know he was using Sandler on me. And he goes, you probably made a mistake for asking for info. And he was using a good old negative reverse, which I was not familiar with at the time. And I go, no, I actually meant to put my info in. But what he did is he offered to send me the bike book, uh, David Sandler's book, You Can't Teach a Kid to Ride a Bike at a Seminar. And that was my very first exposure to Sandler was reading that book. And I love to tell the story about how it showed up on a Friday. And I read a lot, but very seldom do I read a book cover to cover. And that book showed up on a Friday and I read the entire book cover to cover over the weekend. And the the comment that you made about something that hit you over the head like a ton of bricks, as I read that book and I flipped the pages, what really went through my mind is, how have I sold anything in my life? And what jumped out to me the most was that so much of Sandler is about selling the way you want to be sold to disarming honesty, taking the pressure away, telling people that no is an acceptable answer. I think somewhere inside of me that was already kind of in my DNA, but I'd been through so many other sales and management training programs throughout my career that had been stripped out. And instead, I'd been trained to convince people of things rather than help them discover, which is a cornerstone, I believe, of Sandler. Mm -hmm. The prospect must discover that they want to buy. Then it's our job to get out of the way and let them do it. Absolutely. Um, there were a number of kicks in the head for me when I got involved with Sandler out in California in 1988. Uh, the biggest discovery was that Sandler had a transferable method of training uh, that was psychological or selling. It was psychological that was logically transferred. Um, let, let's switch over to talking about the book, Mike. Uh, motivating management, motivational management the Sandler way, or how to get salespeople and other employees to do what you want them to do for their reason. Uh, I have, I've just got to ask, what motivated you to write the book? Yeah, that's a really good question. And for me, the, the if I really strip away why I wrote the book, it's a couple of different things. Somewhere deep inside of me uh, throughout my career in sales and management, I've always been intrigued by why different people do different things, but never really understood it. And I, I kind of always knew, but didn't have the framework to put it in that People work for their reasons, which you know we talk about as a Sandler rule, but I really didn't know how to uncover that or go deep. And over the last seven and a half years of being involved with Sandler, what Sandler has helped me with is understand some of those things that have or have not happened throughout my career. 
So a combination of a natural curiosity that I've had for a long time about just understanding what and how people are motivated, but then being able to use some of the things that we do within Sandler to put a framework around that. And what that's really led to is me putting this book together, and it's literally about what happens in the subconscious that steers people to do things or not do things, say things or not say things. Mm -hmm. Good. Uh, We're going to take a uh, short commercial break here, and we'll be right back. When you hear about a typical sales training program, does it usually involve a one- or two-day seminar where some alleged guru passes down what he claims are the secrets to making sales? At Roth & Associates, I'm the most experienced Sandler sales trainer in Cincinnati. We recognize that truisms and motivating speeches aren't enough to arm sales teams with the tools they need for success. Sales is a hard business. Typical sales training can only provide typical and disappointing results. At Roth & Associates, we use the Sandler methodology of continual reinforcement and ongoing training seminars along with individual coaching to ensure victory in the world of sales. We've been doing it here in Cincinnati for over 15 years. You won't fail because I won't let you. Roth & Associates, 513-646-6523. 513-646-6523. On the web at rothconsulting.net. Finding power in reinforcement. This is Mike Roth, Cincinnati's most experienced Sandler trainer. Many salespeople tell us business was really easy. They likened it to gathering fruit in an orchard full of ripe trees. They gathered the low-hanging fruit. They had to get baskets to pick up the fruit that was already fallen. They never had to climb a tree. They worked this way for 10 or 15 years. Given the strong economy, this was no problem. What are you hearing now? The economy has slowed down. Salespeople are competing on price. There's still business now, but salespeople have to work harder. The fruit has not fallen from the tree, and there's no low-hanging fruit. The fruit is there, but it's higher up in the tree. The problem is their salespeople have forgotten how to climb. Do your salespeople know how to climb? If you or your team needs to learn how to climb through and up out of tough economic times, call me, Mike Roth, at 513-646-6523 or check our website at rothconsulting.net. This is Mike Roth. I'm back with Mike Crandall. Uh, Mike, if uh, someone wants to get a hold of you after... uh the show, uh, what telephone number or website should they go to? Yeah, so our office line is area code 405-844-1700, or you can reach us on our website, which is customgrowth.sandler.com, and all of our contact information is on that website. Uh, Good. Uh, In motivating salespeople or regular employees, uh, what usually fails in, in the area of motivation? I think most sales managers will uh, attempt to motivate salespeople with a compensation plan or contests. Um, why don't you share your opinions on why those kinds of things fail to get the desired results? Yeah, I find that failure in motivation, you've got people or a team. And by the way, everything that is talked about in the book and that I'll reference on our call here, Mike, also applies to your personal life. Um, I've been fortunate over the last couple of weeks since the book's come out to have many people share with me that they read the book and it actually helped them with their sons or their daughters or their spouses more than it helped them with their employees. Mm-hmm. But I find that a lot of times when we're thinking about motivating others, there's a couple of common mistakes. And one of those common mistakes is that 
we just kind of naturally think that whatever motivates us should motivate other people. And I'll give you an example that's very common in sales specifically is dollars. If you're a manager that's motivated by dollars, you think that sales contests or bonuses or extra commissions are what motivate your people. And many times that's not the case. Certainly not to say that some people aren't motivated by money, but if we really take that a level deeper, most people aren't motivated by money. It's what the money allows them to do. The other thing that I see managers really struggle with from a motivation standpoint is that we think we can motivate in groups. You've got 10 employees, you try and throw some incentive or motivation package out there. It tends to be the same for all 10 of them. And very seldom are all people in a group motivated by the same thing. Mm -hmm. If you apply that to your personal life, we've got two kids, my wife and I, and they're motivated by very different things. And we've had to really work hard at helping them get better at that and helping each other get better at that. So that's some of the mistakes that I see managers make is that uh, they, they try and motivate in groups and they make you know guesses that what motivates them also motivates others. Right. Money being a, what I'm going to call a universal motivator doesn't work as strongly in all people. Uh, and the, uh, the old donkey card example is, you know, a carrot and a stick. Uh, the donkey is hungry and the card is light enough. The carrot is a sufficient motiva- motivation. Um, what happens if the donkey isn't hungry? Yep. Yeah, and, and we actually talk about, I, you know, I love the carrot and stick analogy, and it's been used for you know, a very long time in business, and it's true. And, you know, the, the thing that happens sometimes is that you, know, you picture that donkey and that carrot and that stick, and they might be hungry initially, and then they eat the carrot, and then we got to wait for them to be hungry again. And everybody takes a different length of time to get hungry again. And I've seen if I, you know, as I put some of the stuff that we put into the book in retrospect and think back throughout my career as I was a sales manager, I can see a lot of mistakes that I made, you know, money that we mm-hmm. spent on incentive packages that only incentivized certain people or whatever it might be. Right. I, I did the same thing. Uh, what about the, the example if the, uh, the donkey is hungry, but you put the 20,000 pounds into the donkey cart, which is clearly more than he can pull. Yeah. And that's another true one. If, you know, it doesn't matter how hungry you are, if you think that it's not possible, uh, as I was putting everything together and doing a lot of research to put the book together, an interesting memory popped into my mind. And uh, when I was a salesperson, uh, one of my first sales jobs, I spent uh, quite a few years at DeWalt Power Tool. And I remembered our national sales meeting. This is when I was just a sales rep. I wasn't a manager yet. We were at tables at the national sales meeting, you know, a thousand people or however many hundred people in the room. And they started announcing some sales contests. And there were eight or 10 of us at a round table at a conference like many of us have been to. And I remember as they rolled out a contest, everybody going, oh, no sense in even trying for that one. So-and-so's got that one in the bag because he's got the only account that would really help him win that contest. Mm-hmm. And nine of the 10 people at the table kind of already threw in the towel as soon as they heard about the contest. And it's very similar to the you put too much weight in the cart. Doesn't matter how enticing the incentive is. Mm-hmm. And some people put square wheels on the cart so you can reduce the weight. But with square wheels, most donkeys won't get it moving. That's true. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, let's talk about the other side of that, the stick uh, in sales that will re- represent threats. So if you don't make your sales objective, you're going to be fired or demoted or your territory is going to be uh, cut. Why doesn't that work on a regular basis? Yeah, well, in just like the carrot and the stick, it may work and it may work short term and temporary. But what tends to happen is that a lot of times those threats kind of fall on deaf ears. 
And, you know, if they do work, it's not long-term and sustainable, but if, if it doesn't, what tends to happen is that I, I create an environment where people are maybe scared, fearful, feel jaded. You know, as an example, mm-hmm. if, every, if every quarter you hear the same thing, you know, we're going to cut budgets next quarter if, if uh, you know, you don't make some changes here, um, eventually you get kind of worn out to that. And you don't either you're already looking for another job or you just don't take it serious. And so that, that fear motivation tends to be a derailer over time, not a, not a motivator. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the best people would be the ones who might be motivated quickest to uh, attempt to find a new job if they know they're going to get whipped every quarter. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, just as a, as a quick teaser before we get into it, the next uh, segment, what is the best way to, to motivate uh, sales teams, Mike? Yeah, well, in, whether it's sales teams or other employees or just people around you, uh, really understanding what goes on inside of them. And you mentioned as a teaser, you know, we talk about in the book attitude motivation, but what you've really got to understand is, is what are some of the internal drivers that they have? And most people can't tell you them. If you ask most people what motivates them, they can't tell them. So when we come back from the next break, We'll go a little bit deeper into that and uh, kind of talk about attitudinal motivation and what that is, and even more importantly, how to begin to use it. Good. Let's listen to uh, Bob Barber talk about Sandler Rule number six. Hi, I'm Bob Barber with Sandler Training. I'm here to talk to you about rule number six. Don't buy back tomorrow what you sold today. I was talking to a salesperson the other day and he'd closed a big deal. Gone to the bank, cashed the check, the works. Unfortunately, he got a four o'clock in the morning phone call from a prospect saying, put a hold on things, something's come up. He'd had second thoughts, second thoughts. Have you ever had second thoughts? Of course you have, it's human nature. It's usually right after you let your daughter stay out late on Friday night or you order dessert or buy that new car. Did I make the right decision? It's only human nature. Traditional salespeople tend to rush through that process, hope that the person doesn't have their human nature natural reaction of second thoughts or buyer's remorse. They try to close the deal, pass that problem on to somebody else, get that contract process. At Sandler, we help the prospect embrace that. Bring it up. Help them go through it. Work through that second thought, that buyer's remorse. It might sound something like, Jim, I'm looking forward to working with you. I think it's going to be fun. This accounting solution is what your company needs. Now, you were a little concerned that we couldn't get the conversion in place within three weeks. It's going to be more like five. Are you going to be okay with that? Help that person work through it. What better way to reinforce the role of a trusted advisor than to help that person work through their buyer's Rule number six, don't buy back tomorrow what you sold today. This is Mike Roth. I'm back with uh, Mike Crandall, and we're talking about motivation. Uh, so in the last segment, we talked about uh, uh, the carrot and the stick, and now we're talking about the, uh, the best way to, uh, to motivate uh, your people. Uh, Mike, you said internal motivation is the, is the way to uh, motivate people. Well, how do you get inside their heads to find out what internally motivates them? Yeah, so Mike, that's a, another really good question. And This is where Sandler really helped me with the framework on how do we get better at motivation. 
Um, I know some of the listeners are probably familiar with the Sandler submarine. Some of them are not. For those who are not, uh, strongly encourage you to get a hold of Mike Roth or your Sandler coach and, and learn a little more about it. But step number one in the Sandler process, and whether we use it for sales or management leadership or customer service, is bonding and rapport. You've got to understand some things about your people. As we talk about in Sandler, bonding and rapport is really about subconscious comfort. And you know, we talk about it being things like, you know, fast decision maker, slow decision maker, love small talk, hate small talk. And I've got to have some bonding and rapport with those that I'm looking to motivate, whether that's my salespeople, whether that's other employees, or you know, maybe you're just serve as a, a board president of a nonprofit board and you want to motivate the rest of the people on the board. I've got to have some connection with them. And then we can use the upfront contract part of Sandler to have good framework for dialogue. But to get it to those inside reasons, I've got to understand some things about them. And one of the concepts that we talk about in the book is that there's really five internal drivers. And those five internal drivers are, we are driven, I call them the five twos as in TOs, to do, to be, to have, to be known for. And when we take those five different things, oh, I'm sorry, to accomplish, I forgot that one we take those five different things, we can really learn some different things about our people. And for example, if somebody wants to be known for accomplishing something, then I can use that as a framework to have different conversations with them. But I've got to have a starting point that allows me to start figuring those things out because I can't just guess at it. Right. You have have to know where the the button is and it starts with great bonding and rapport with people that you want to motivate. Uh, if you don't have it, uh, won't work. Um, Absolutely. Uh, another Sandler uh, attribute you talk about is uh, the phrase that uh, behavior drives attitude. Uh, why don't you uh, share with our listeners a little bit about what you meant by? That? And Mike, this kind of goes back to you know you asked me at the beginning of the call what were some of the things when I was first introduced to Sandler that kind of hit me like a ton of bricks, and mm-hmm. this is one of them for for years throughout my life and my career. I had been under the belief that attitude drove behavior. And if I just think positive thoughts and feel good, um, you know, I'll have a good, everything else will work out. And the first time that I'd been exposed to the concept that behavior drives attitude, I was a little bit resistant and hesitant. Uh, You know, when we're presented with new information, we usually tend to kind of defend against it. And just in that, like in that situation, I, I really didn't get it. But as you strip it away a little, and go a little bit deeper, what you can figure out is that what people do really drives how they feel and how they think about things. And one of the examples that I always like to use in behavior drives attitude is even the simple task of making a list. You take out a sheet of paper and you make a list, you know, I need to do this, I need to, you know, whatever it is, the feeling or the attitude that I have when I cross the things off the list is very powerful for most people. So the behavior of making the list and checking things off will drive my positive attitude. Another mm-hmm. example is going to the gym and working out. You know, if I don't take care of myself, it's easy to feel terrible. And I can't just say, I'm going to wake up in a great mood and go to the gym. But if I force myself to go to the gym, even if I don't want to, most people have had that experience of, oh, yeah, I felt really good after I did that. Right. And from a motivational standpoint, understanding that about your people is a key because we've got to figure out what are the behaviors that we should help them with, help them focus on, so it will drive that positive attitude. 
Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, how do you get, how does a manager get underneath the facade that, uh, that people want to show to, uh, find out what's, uh, in the back of their mind that you can use to, to motivate them? Yeah, there's a lot of different things. And a big chunk of the book is about the how to do this as a manager or a leader or a parent. Mm-hmm. One of the things that we talk about is helping your people set goals. And you know, we live in a society where very seldom do we learn how to set goals. And if we do, it tends to be just generic. And most people, when they talk about goals, they just talk about superficial things because that's what society thinks of. They think about goals as I need to make more money or have a bigger house or buy a new car. And there's nothing wrong with those things, but that's truly not what most people are motivated by. Give you an example. Every year we do an annual goal setting workshop for all of our clients. And the very first exercise I have them do is write down all of the things that they're most proud of that they've accomplished this year. When you really think about everything you've done this year, what, what stands out to you is the things you're most proud of. And most people write down 10 or 15 things. And then I will ask them this question. Would you have set a goal for those things? And the answer overwhelmingly every year, every time I've ever done this is no, because we may want a new house, but we probably weren't most proud of that. We tend to be more proud of, you know, I finished school, I spent more time with my spouse, or, you know, I went on that vacation with my son that I've been talking about or whatever it is. And most people don't set goals around those. And if we can understand some of those things about our teams and also an extremely important about ourselves, it'll change the framework of what we do and mm-hmm. how we do it. Right. Uh, goal setting has, uh, in, at least in, in my experience, been not something that most salespeople want to do. Uh, you have uh, written lists of goals. A fewer voluntarily uh, have uh, something like a Sandler cut and paste board to put their goals up. And uh, here on this end of the world, we, we do at least three classes a year on goal setting uh, because it helps uh, them. And actually, it helps me to find out what motivates them. Sometimes it's Absolutely. strange stuff. Strange stuff. Um, yeah. uh, one time we had a guy put a uh, an old-fashioned sailing ship up on his cut-and-paste poster. Almost took the whole size of the poster. And then he put, the, like, uh, four, four good-looking ladies in bikinis uh, in the four corners. And when, when asked to explain his cut-and-paste poster, he probably said, I'm planning to get a divorce this year, <laughs> which he actually did. Uh, but getting inside of uh, our, our people's heads to find to find out what motivates them so they can preferably kick themselves in the ass to get the job done is the, uh, is, is the million-dollar question. Um, why do you think most salespeople uh, don't want to write goals down? I think that there's a couple of different things there. And a lot of times people are afraid to articulate goals because if I articulate a goal and I don't achieve it, I view myself as a failure. And Mm -hmm. you've got to have some goals to reach for. You may not reach them all, but I think that there's an innate fear of failure. And if I don't articulate the goal, then I can't say I've failed. I think another huge challenge is that most people really don't even understand how to do it. You know, one of the things that I intentionally put in the book is in the back, there's an appendix. And one of the appendix is a step-by-step goal-setting process. And 
you know, we can easily overcomplicate goal setting and there's a lot of different ways to do it and there's no perfect or exact way. But most people, unless they've actually experienced something, struggle on how to take on something new. And you know, just like you talked about your goal setting workshops, when we do them, people that have done it for the first time, they're like, oh my goodness, I've always thought this is much harder and more complicated. And sometimes you just need a step-by-step, here's step one, here's step two, here's step three. And, and again, we put that in the book. The third reason that I see people really struggle with goals is just even taking the time. You know, one of the things that we do in our president's club, which you know, anybody that's involved in Sandler that's listening is familiar with, is every quarter we do a quarterly checkup. So you know, about once every three months, one of our president's club sessions, a quarterly checkup. And I run everybody through a series of questions to kind of check up on how their year is going, good and bad. Mm-hmm. And anybody that's been through our goal setting the prior year, one of the things that always comes up is, you know, hey, of the top 10 goals that I had, four of them I've already checked off my list or six of them or whatever it might be. But even taking the time and one of the things that I do every time we do that session in President's Club I ask everybody at the end, would you have taken the time to review your year and check off where you're at if I didn't block it out and make it part of today's session? And the answer 100% of the time is, nope, I would have been too busy. Mm. So we occupy ourselves with uh, matters that are not as relevant, but pressing. Oh, yeah. And lose sight of what the most important uh, goals are. Uh, In the book, you talk about... uh, Purpose and the Disney organization. Uh, I was hoping you could share uh, one of the stories from the book about uh, what you learned from uh, working with the Disney organization and the way they talk about their purpose of their employees. Yeah, I'd be happy to. And I'll kind of give you an abbreviated version, the, the longer versions in the book. But one of the things that tends to happen, and you know, for decades we've heard messages about you've got to find out your why. And I'm doing air quotes when I say why. I know people on the listening can't hear or can't see that. But the, the talk about finding your why has got a little bit of a flaw in it because we don't actually, in very many situations, tell people how to find out your why. We just tell them they need to know it. And mm-hmm. actually, I had somebody share with me that this book is kind of a step-by-step how-to guide to help people figure out their why. But purpose is, is what am I really driven to do? And when we talk about it from an organizational standpoint, and I think Disney does a great job of this, they help their employees learn that the purpose is to create an experience for the people visiting their parks. Mm -hmm. Your purpose isn't to mow the lawn or clean up the trash or scrub down the counters. That might be a task to help with the purpose, but the purpose is really to make sure that we focus on the experience. And several years ago, my wife and I were at Disney. I was down in Florida for a conference and I had a couple of extra days on the beginning or the end of the end or the end of the conference. And we decided to go to one of the Disney parks and I watched this happen. We were somewhere in the park and about 60, 70 feet away or so, there was a, what appeared to be a mom and a dad and a little girl, I'm going to guess four years old, maybe. And she was walking and she was holding an ice cream cone and I saw the ice cream cone drop and I could tell that the girl was upset. And all of a sudden out of nowhere, there was a guy in like work coveralls clearly worked for the park, have no idea where he came from. I saw him talk to mom and dad, and then I saw him get down on a knee, and he was visiting with the girl, and it was pretty obvious through body language. I couldn't hear him. Pretty obvious through body language that he said to hold on and, and asked him to wait there. And saw him disappear, and just in a couple of minutes later, he came back with a new ice cream. And from a Disney standpoint, 
they do that because they want all of their employees to make the top focus the client experience. And the last thing they want is that girl to remember the bad part of her day of maybe losing her ice cream cone. And maybe mom and dad couldn't afford to buy her a new one. Who knows? But that employee, for whatever his official job was, put everything on a hold to take care of that little girl and her family. And I will tell you, throughout my life, I've been to a lot of different amusement parks, you know, small ones, local ones, regional ones, et cetera. I can't imagine any amusement park I would have ever seen that happen at other than a Disney park. Right. That, that, that's unusually good. Uh, we're going to take a, a break here, Mike, and uh, we're going to listen to uh, one of the Sandler tactics. We're going to listen to Sandler tactic number 14, and we'll be back in about two minutes. Sandler tactic closing. Nick had just been hired, and as of yet, he had not been sent out to sales training. If it weren't for the two guys that called in sick, Nick would have never been on the floor. But there he was with only the most basic of information that he was supposed to use to sell. Hi, said the prospect coming up to Nick. I'm interested in that gray one over there. Nick was in a panic, and before he could help himself, he blurted out, Oh, that gray one over there? That's good, I guess. Yeah, it's good. Been looking for that for a while. Once again, Nick found his mouth working independently of his brain. I guess you really must not need it since you've been looking for it for a while. Well, responded the prospect. Now that you mention it, I really do need it. I just wanted to make sure. Oh, said Nick. Then you're not really sure? The prospect just stared at Nick for a moment and turned and looked at the gray one. Nick had no idea what to do next, so he found himself just standing there sort of like a dummy. Tell you what, said the prospect, I'll take it. You'll take it? Asked Nick, astonished. Definitely. My mind's made up. After the customer had left, Nick decided that as soon as he got that sales trading, he'd know exactly what to do. He'd never feel like a dummy again. So the result. With any... With any luck and enough time, Nick will learn that professional salespeople do exactly what the neophyte salesperson does, but they do it on purpose. And when the two ailing salespeople return, they'll be blamed on beginner's luck. Nick succeeded in this case because he stumbled into the way to let the prospect close himself. Nick did not get in the way of the prospect. The Sam the Rule and Play here is it's okay to be not okay on purpose. And... As a dummy, Nick didn't know the features and benefits. Therefore, he had to rely on the prospect. When the prospect discovers they want to buy, it's a lot easier to sell. Selling is a discovery process by the prospect. Features and benefits, great presentations, they make the salespeople feel real good, but they won't necessarily close the sale. This is Mike Roth. I'm back with uh, Mike Crandall. We're talking about his uh, new Sandler book. Motivational Management, The Sandler Way, or How to Get Salespeople and Other Employees to Do What You Want Them to Do for Their Reasons. And uh, Mike, uh, what do you think the biggest lesson learned was that you got when you decided to put the book together? Yeah, I, I think the biggest lesson for me was that somewhere deep inside of us, myself included, there are some drivers that they and we just have to figure out how to figure how, how to learn those things and then how to use those. And it's far easier said than done. And, and the book was put together as kind of a, a handbook and a how-to guide to do that. But for me, I even learned a few better things about my motivation. Um, I thought I knew it pretty well. But as I was putting some of the things in the book together, all of a sudden I kind of had these, uh, you know, hindsight light bulbs of, oh, 
that's why I did that or why I didn't do that or, or why I was excited about that or why I wasn't excited about that. Mm-hmm. So somewhere deep inside of us, it exists. We just need to work on how to figure it out and then what to do with it once we learn it. Mm-hmm. So I've got to ask what motivated you to write the book in the first place? Yeah, well, in in the book, we talk about that internal motivation is really those five twos, to do, to be, to have, to accomplish, and to be known for. And for me, I've always wanted to be known as a published author. And somewhere deep inside of me that existed, I guess I didn't even realize it until I used some of this framework, but I've always wanted to be known as an author. And, you know, I've spoken for a long time in my career and I've struggled more with the written word. I always tell people I've got that proverbial writer's block. If you hand me a microphone, I don't have any problem doing anything with it. But if you put me in front of a laptop keyboard, I can sit there forever and not ever type anything. But to be known as an author uh, is, is a big part of it. And those five twos are not mutually exclusive, sometimes more than one. And uh, I'm a big accomplishment person. Uh, I love to be able to check things off that I've accomplished them. And so for me, it's to accomplish and to be known for. Okay. Uh, you know, as as I read through the book, I got different things, and I'm, I'm sure our re- our listeners are going to get. Um, why don't you give our, our listeners a, a fast recap of what's in the book and the way you think uh, they should read the book? Yeah, so um, in addition to that, not just – the way they should read the book, but what to do with it. And one of the things that I found is a great thing to do with this book. I've got a lot of companies that have had all of their managers, supervisors, and uh, some that have even had all their employees read it as kind of a group read. Um, it was put together as uh, you know a fairly easy read, uh, not an overly long read. And it was broken down into chapters that every single chapter you can take away from. And, and intentionally so at the end of every chapter is a box with questions and action steps. So you can almost use it as kind of a workbook if you want. But what I found is that the best way to do this and and what's in the book that helps you with that is to read it to understand why some of what you've done historically or might be doing right now isn't working or at least isn't working as well as you want. So in the book, we talk about incentive motivation, the carrots and fear motivation, the stick. And we talk about why they don't work and a little bit about why they do, but it's not long-term and sustainable. And then we really go deep into this internal attitudinal motivation. And we give some exercises and some examples of what to do. And throughout the book are stories to wrap it into context that most people can relate to. So in the book, um, lots of different things. I kind of think of it as a how-to. But the best suggestion that I'd give people is pick up a copy and read it for yourself first. And you'll most likely have some ideas that pop into your own head about what and how to use it with those around you. Mm. You know, if I was going to give someone a recommendation about how to read this book, I'd say plan on reading it three times. The first time you pick it up, it's a short read, relatively easy read. Read the whole thing through and put it down for a week. Second time through, take a pad and jot down your your best notes from each chapter. Third time through, about a month later, uh, look for the stuff that, uh, that you worked with and then keep a list of things that you need to keep working on. Because uh, I see there's a, there's a lot of material in the book that uh, most people don't know how to use. And uh, I'll tell a story about motivation pre-Sandler that I used uh, as a sales manager, national sales manager for a company. I needed to uh, get sales up for the last quarter of the year. And uh, I intentionally wrote one of those motivation because I did the carrot and the stick in the sales team and the, the grand prize in the sales contest was a uh, 
helicopter ski trip to Utah. And it was a rig contest. There was only one guy in the Salesforce, uh, a diehard skier. When he heard the contest grand prize, he went nuts and he outsold everyone in the sales team by himself. And naturally, he won the contest and won the trip to Utah, but he brought in more profitable business than nine out of 10 guys in the sales force. So that, uh, that worked because I found out what's inside of Dick's head. Uh, most of the time, sales managers don't find out what's inside their team's head. Um, is there a shortcut uh, that you can give our, our listeners uh, as we wrap up to getting out? getting the information that's inside of people's heads? Uh, I, I think that, in, and I don't know if I'd call it a shortcut, but you know, that bonding and rapport, getting to know your people, and then goal setting is a big part of it. And you know, I love your story about Dick and the ski trip. I don't know how you learned that, but we've got to learn those types of things about people. And the challenge is, is that we typically don't. Um, you know, as you shared that story, it made me think about a story. Um, when I was a sales rep, and this is 20 years ago, they had this huge sales contest where uh, I ended up winning and I could take some people to a big golf tournament. I'm personally not much of a golfer. And my manager was super ecstatic. He's like, oh, Mike, you just won the best contest ever. And I'm like, I didn't do it for the win. And he mm-hmm. goes, why is that? And I go, I, I could care less about the golf tournament. And, and he was like dumbfounded. And for me, one of the things that I always knew when, when I was in a situation where I was part of a team and you know there was a team scoreboard, I always wanted to see my name at the top, regardless of what the prize was. Um, now, if it was a prize you know, that I cared about, it might have been a little bit of an extra kicker, but he thought that I really loved golf, and that's why I won that contest. It couldn't have been farther from the truth. Right. For a lot of salespeople, they want to see their name at the top of the list or near the top of the list as opposed to the bottom yeah. of the list. And that's a very different driver than the prize or the carrot. And sometimes those accidentally line up. But, you know, you just talked about you had you know, 10 salespeople. One was motivated by the ski trip, and that worked out well. But there could have been some people on that team that were demotivated and didn't want to even try because they didn't care about skiing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we worked with different things. And uh, it probably took me uh, a year to actually stumble upon the, the ski ski trip idea with Dick. Uh, mm. And different people had different motivations. Uh, I was working with a client, and he wanted his sales rep in Columbus, Ohio, to do, sell a half a million dollars worth of uh, product in a city that was three hours away because he lost the salesperson in that city. And I said, what motivates him? And uh, the company owner knew. He was a, a watch watch collector. Mm-hmm. And I say, well, how much money is it, is it costing you because you're not getting that half a million dollars in the city three hours away? And he said, well, gee, it's going to cost me at least uh, 200 grand. I said to him, and it's easy. Just tell Kim if he brings you in the half a million bucks in uh, the city three hours away, you're going to buy him a new Rolex presidential for $23,000. And I forgot about the conversation. About six months later, I'm having a, a one-on-one meeting with the company owner. And he says, Mike, you cost me $23,000 this week. And I said, what do you mean? Kim hit the half a million. I had to go out to the, the mall jewelry store and get him that Rolex presidential. Good job, Mike. Well, that's Internal a great motivation. example. Internal yeah, Mike, motivation. A- go ahead. Oh, so that's a great example of, you know, if we if we take those five twos that were talked about in the book to have uh, to have a certain type of watch is one of those motivators. But not everybody has it. That's right. Most people don't care too much. Uh, the watches motivate you, Mike. Not really. Me either. I have one or two that work. That's good enough. Yeah. So for, for, for me, it's something to keep time, not something to brag about or, or whatever it might be. And uh, I actually uh, a couple of years ago, uh, you talk about that motivation. 
for our uh, one of our milestone anniversaries, my wife said we should get matching Rolexes. And I went, why? Because <laughs> wearing an expensive watch does nothing for me. Um, but she's a jewelry person, so it really is a motivator for her. And there's nothing wrong with that. We just have to figure out and understand that different people are motivated by different things. Yeah, some people like to travel. I talked to uh, one sales guy who confessed to me uh, that it's great to get on there. Hasn't flown any place since 1987. So I said, okay, sure. a sales contest with a trip to Hawaii is the winner's prize just won't work for this guy. But no. uh, we have to customize motivation for the individual. And uh, getting inside of, of people's head requires a lot of bonding and rapport with every member of the team. Uh, might explain why it's easier to do it with family because you have more time with them and you know them better. Uh, when a, uh, a new vice president of sales or sales manager is hired, Mike, uh, how, how would you recommend to find out what, what the motivators are for the members of the team that they've inherited? Yeah, and Mike, I love that question. One of the things that I encourage our clients to do is when you hire a new person, have them bring a cut and paste dream board when they start. Now, you got to give them a little bit of direction and, and understanding, but it's not so much what's on there, it's the conversation that can open up with that. So if I hire you day one, you're supposed to bring a cut and paste dream board. I'm gonna spend some time asking you, what is this on here and, and why that one? You know, you shared the story about the, the big uh, old time sailboat and the, you know, the guy's dream board. Just opening up the conversation and the dialogue and the bonding and rapport that can come from that tends to be a very powerful thing. Because most of the things that people put on a, a dream board cut and paste, you know, exercise, there's a reason for it. And it'll tell us an awful lot and open those doors for conversations. Another thing that I encourage my clients to do, and, and we actually talk about this in the book, is to have your employees, whether they're brand new or whether they've been around for a long time, do a favorites list. You know, what's your favorite vacation spot? What's your favorite TV show? What's your favorite candy bar? What's your favorite restaurant? Again, it's not so much for what people put on the list as it is for the dialogue and the conversation that can open up from that. You know, somebody mm -hmm. might put down, my favorite vacation is, and then you can ask questions. You know, a big part of Sandler is just asking questions to, to create comfortable interactions. Well, Mike, you said your favorite vacation was this. Why that vacation? And that'll mm -hmm. give us a lot of insight into, again, those five twos that are talked about in the book, to do to be, to have, to accomplish, and to be known for. But most people can't just tell you what motivates. We've got to have some framework and some exercises to learn that. I'm going to put a little bit of a challenge to our listeners. Uh, in the first season of uh, a TV show called Two Broke Girls, probably it was the fourth or fifth episode, the two girls did a dream board. Tell us what the motivations were that each one of the two girls had on the dream board. Uh, I don't know if you've ever used it in your classes, Mike, but uh, I've I've told people about that episode and we've gotten some uh, remote, remarkable results from it. Uh, you know, I've I've seen an episode or two of that show, but never the first one. So I'm going to have to go look it up. Is that a video you can find on YouTube pretty easily? Um, probably. You can probably get it off of uh, Hulu. Uh, it was okay. season one. It was episode number four or five. Huh. Uh, it was a phenomenal episode. I nearly fell off the chair when I, when I, uh, when I saw it. Um, might require a, a tad bit of editing to use it in a public class, but uh, it's on YouTube, so it's good stuff. Uh, Mike, thanks again for uh, uh, being on the show with us today. And again, if, if they have any questions for you, how should they get a hold of you? Yep. So uh, if you want to call direct, our office line is area code 
844-144-1700. Or if you want to check us out online, email me or, or follow us on any of our social media links. They're all on our website, which is customgrowth.sandler.com. Once again, customgrowth.sandler.com. Again, Mike, thanks for being on the show. And uh, for our regular listeners, uh, look on our website for uh, what the first few episodes will be in 2017. Thanks again, Mike. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. This program is the property of Sandler Training by Roth & Associates, Inc. The show may be distributed only with written permission and then only in its entirety. If you have any questions or comments, contact Mike at MikeRoth at RothConsulting.net or call Mike at 513-753-9400.